I do not want to come back here. I don't care if I lose the clothes. I don't want to come back. I don't want to have the memories of all the stuff I got here. Hi, I'm Eric Goldwine from LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast, and you just heard the voice of Mary Curtis, a nursing home resident who died after a short stay at a nursing home outside of Las Vegas. Mary's story is featured in a must-watch Vice documentary, How Nursing Homes Hide Profits While Residents Suffer. And on this episode, we'll go behind the scenes with the journalists who led this project, Vice's Tomas Navia and Joshua Hirsch. In the interview, we chat about how the film came together, what it was like investigating a nursing home chain that doesn't want to be investigated, the complex financial arrangements surrounding the nursing home industry, and much, much more. Throughout the interview, you'll hear sound bites like the one from Mary to give you a taste of the documentary, but you'll absolutely want to take the 40 minutes to watch the whole thing, and that's available on YouTube. For a link, check out our show notes or head to bit.ly slash vice nursing home. Hope you enjoy the interview. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Hi, Tomas. Hi, Josh. Uh, it's good to have you on the Nursing Home 411 podcast. So, so this documentary, it's about it's about nursing home profits. It's about, you'll see financial statements, related party transactions. Uh, you'll see a, bit, a good amount of numbers and charts and spreadsheets. You'll learn a little bit of history, but it's ultimately about the people most affected by these complex uh, financial arrangements. And that's the residents and their families. You focus on a woman named Lara and her mother, Mary Curtis. And I want to know how you uh, arrived at, at Lara, what led you to this, and what are what are their stories? Sure. So, you know, one of the things when it comes to reporting on nursing homes in this capacity is it's actually really hard to find. Laura was somebody that we came to through just talking to several lawyers across the country um, that do nursing home litigation to see if they had any ongoing cases um, and. You know, we found her after, you know, talking to probably about a dozen lawyers, Um, you know, she was in the middle of her, her trial or her case. So she didn't have any restrictions on what she could and couldn't talk about other than ones perhaps imposed by her lawyer. And she just seemed like a really good example of just an everyday person who wasn't really expecting to encounter the nursing home industry or nursing homes at all. And because of just a, a condition that her mother had, she had to be put in there temporarily and that stay, you know, you know, uh, led to sort of events that led to the end of her life. Um, so it was a very compelling story, but it just, it took, you know, making a bunch of calls to find her. Part of her, of uh, uh, the scenes in her house that stood out to me are uh, she's has her iPod, iPad out and she's showing video of, Mm-hmm. her mother with these desperate cries for help. I do not want to come back here. I don't care if I lose the clothes. I don't want to come back. I don't want to have the memories of all the stuff I got here. She was begging to go home. I want you to be in some place. Please do this for me. 
I know you had to go with your eyes for your kind of further explain what's happening in in those videos and what you learned uh, from from Laura just by seeing her watch those videos you know so many times when people have loved ones who go into nursing homes that suffer or they have allegations that they suffer in these nursing homes you know there isn't video or footage showing exactly what that looks like and what made her such a compelling character is that she had these videos. Um, she used to have these uh, family caretakers that would um, take care of her mother because Laura lives you know, on the East Coast. Her mother lived in Las Vegas. Um, and so in order to sort of keep the connection between them, um, these family caretakers would take videos of um, you know, Mary, Laura's mother, and send them to, to Laura. Um, and so they were the ones taking videos inside the nursing home. And then once Laura went to the nursing home, she also took videos because she was just used to seeing that. Um, so she says, so, um, you know, using that and having her show us and explain to us what was going on and, and take us through that time period visually as well, using those videos was a way for us to bring the audience in and really show like, this is what happens behind the closed doors of nursing homes in some cases. <laughs> And, right. then, and then, of course, she's having an emotion, a very real emotional reaction to watching the videos, right? So you're getting, you're getting a, a moment that's playing out in, in multiple time, time periods, essentially, all, all at once. Mm -hmm. Laura's house is in, is in New Jersey. You end up, uh, you, you probably racked up a lot of uh, uh, car mileage. I don't know if you flew to some of these places. You were in Cleveland, uh, Texas. Uh, uh, other places, but you start to zoom, the documentary starts to zoom out. This is on the one hand, it's a story about, about Laura and, and her mother, Mary, but it's about the nursing home that, that she uh, belonged to. It's about the chain, the life care chain. And it's really about for-profit nursing homes as a whole. Uh, how, how does this one story fit into this larger, larger theme? I mean, there's lots of ways to structure a long piece. One, one way could be to just tell one person's story over the course of an hour. Um, another is to sort of do what we did, which is to kind of interweave these two different sections. So you have a kind of somewhat specific tale about Laura and life care and the company specifically that owned and the individual that owned the company where her mother was. And um, you're going kind of deeper and deeper into that space. and and then alternately you are zooming back and getting a really big picture take at how this industry functions on the whole. And you know that, but it was very important to us in the beginning. And I think we talked about this a lot, not just structurally, but when we thought about what's the problem here, what's the problem that we want to identify in this piece? Like, why, why are we telling this story? Um, because to an extent, each of the individual things that we might point out that went wrong either in, Laura and her mother's case or in one particular piece of data and what happened during COVID, you know, wh wherever you look, you see the sequence of failings in nursing home industry and they're familiar. You've seen them before. They've played out in some cases over and over again. 
And um, rather than just do a piece that said, expose, people die in unfamiliar circumstances because of over-medication uh, or medication errors in nursing homes, rather than treat that as a novel, novel thing, we wanted to say, wait a minute, this actually isn't novel. And maybe that's the problem. Why is it that these things keep repeating themselves? And in fact, why is it that these things have been identified going back 20, 30, 40 years by groups like yours, by uh, investigative reporters going back 50 years? Why do they keep repeating ourselves? And that caused us to pull back so far that we were actually asking just very, very big questions about the nature of this industry. Yeah, and so there, there's one interview, I'm sure there were multiple off camera where you talked to a historian about, about uh, the life care owner or founder of Forrest Preston, and there's the B-roll footage of the giant uh, property showing that he's this maybe billionaire, very, very wealthy guy that, that runs this chain, but there's really not a lot of information on him. There was like, what, like four pictures that you could legally use of, of him. Uh, that was remarkable, by the, I mean, that was remarkable, yeah. by the way. I mean, Tomas can maybe talk about that a little more, but we obviously, as a, this is a visual medium, we wanted to show you <laughs> the person who was, and it's not that the pictures don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, Tomas, why don't you, can you explain that a little bit? Because I, th- I thought I found that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that um, most of the pictures that are out there that we could find um, were either owned by Forrest Preston or a company like Care Centers of America. And in order to use it or to license it, you need permission, right? Um, and we did not hear back on getting permission to use those. We actually did not hear back from Life Care at all throughout this entire reporting process. Um, and so those were for photos that we were able to find from a local newspaper in Cleveland, Tennessee, that they had taken at some event that had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to license those. Um, yeah, really, really. I mean, so this, this is, this is getting into the nature of life care specifically this company. I mean, this is so like this, these are the two directions this piece went. One direction was very broad. How does this industry function? And the other was very specific. What, what is this company life care? Mm-hmm. And who is this man who, who owns it? Who's I, I, I think, arguably one of the richest people who most people have never heard of. Right. And it's like a, there's a lot of voices in, in this documentary, but the voice that's left out um, or not for lack of effort as you indicate is, is life cares. And you, uh, there's, there's a, you interview some former employees with the dark, dark room and the altered voices, uh, which uh, it, it always, uh, this this kind of scene's always always uh, draw my attention. It makes it seem like very like uh, high risk and uh, a lot a lot at stake. Um, that's that's what we're going for there, you know. It's the, yeah, but, uh, the, well, but the, the the truth is that um, off camera, we spoke to a lot of people associated with the company. Um, I think we spoke to, I mean, I personally spoke to two people who were at the highest levels of the company at some point in its history. I mean, we went back really far, you know, and we went back far into Forrest Preston's personal life and into the company's history, which has a very long history. I mean, it dates back uh, decades and decades. And um, uh, we spoke to, I think, you know, in terms of active or very recent employees, close to a dozen. So we, we, we did, we felt the absence of the company's voice. I mean, not we did not make a, 
just to be clear, we did not make a kind of half-hearted effort to reach this company. We, we made concerted, repeated, constant efforts through almost every avenue we could think of. Um, we sent them at some point with a, quite a lot of time left in the process, a four-page document detailing every single thing we said about um, the company and, and Mr. Preston personally. I mean, everything down to the tedious stuff. We sent them everything we could think of. Um, we sent it to every address we could find. We spoke to people and confirmed those are the right address. We spoke to people and confirmed those are the right people. I mean, we did this whole, because I've never quite had an experience like this one in my years of journalism where we just never heard back at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I don't know, I, I hesitate to speculate on why that was, but I do think it's a little bit telling the, the sense of security they, they clearly have that um, we, maybe us specifically, but I think in general, the press doesn't feel like a threat to them. Right. Did you hear anything afterwards? Because uh, I, hear, I hear about stories where like after something comes out, then the, then the complaints come. Uh, no, this was wrong. This was mischaracterized or this anything after them or just radio? We fully, we fully anticipated them to do that. In fact, we were expecting them to say that we never reached out. I mean, we were, I mean, we were uh, for no reason. We just were fearing that we were operating under the assumption that they were going to say that they never got anything from us, which is part of why we spent such an effort to get to them. Um, But no, uh, the truth is that they seem, and you know, there's a moment in the, in the interview, in the piece where we interview a man named David Hoffman, who's um, a lawyer and a professor, and he's worked on nursing home reform for many years and also had a, for a period of time, a a, a close interaction with life care because he was a court appointed monitor. Well, I, well, he was a federal government like a, a assigned monitor to work directly with the company at some point during one of, in the aftermath of one of their settlements. And he was talking about all of the ways the government attempts to bring these companies into control and to regulate them and to scare them into doing things. And, and one of them, of course, is, is levying a number of fines. And, and, you know, I asked him, like, do you think that these companies just consider this this whole process and these fines as the cost of doing business? And he said, I do. Uh, and I think I think in a lot of ways, the regulatory system that exists now, and we can talk more about it if you like, but the process that exists now from the government is essentially digested, pre-digested by the companies as part of the process of running these things. Um, and so why, why would they be concerned about whatever we have to say about them? You know, some some media company out of Brooklyn. I think that's actually one of the biggest takeaways from me doing the documentary. Um, just realizing how much power nursing homes have um, within the system um, that even a lot of people who were formerly involved with suing nursing homes from the government's perspective for, you know, potentially criminal actions or um, potential fraud, you know, even they felt like with the power of the U.S. government behind them, like they could only do so much. Um, that was sort of a, a, a bit eye-opening for me. And it, there were two other, I'll, I'll call them main characters, uh, that really provided uh, uh, some of the, uh, at least from, from my side, from my side, I, I thought they, they added a, a educational component. And one of those is more on the data side. And that's uh, Ernie Tosh. He's an attorney and an expert in nursing home finances. And uh, you visited his 
data had uh, his house, but uh, you visited his, in Grapevine, Texas, where I understand there's all sorts of uh, uh, computers, uh, uh, just filled with data and spreadsheets. And uh, what did you learn from Ernie? That was that was just the inside of Ernie's brain. That's all. That's <laughs> <laughs> Tomas, will you, would you talk about that? Yeah, um, Ernie has an incredible ability to make really complicated things really accessible when it comes to finances. Um, and I think, you know, he sort of pulled the curtain back on the ways in which many nursing homes can use these things called related parties, which are companies that are owned by the same company or individual that owns the nursing home to move money around. And through moving money around can sort of obscure how much profit these nursing homes are making. Um, so I think it's important to know that the generally the nursing home industry um, and the lobby will go before Congress on occasions, you know, and say, you know, we don't, we can't handle any more cuts to Medicare and Medicaid funding because nursing homes get most of their revenue from the government. They often lobby for more money, um, saying that nursing homes are on the verge of collapse, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, and Ernie basically calls that a lie. Um, and says that nursing homes are manipulating their numbers to uh, make it seem like they're losing money when in fact they're just moving the money elsewhere. And once it's moved, you know, the government and the public doesn't really know what happens to that money. This is where the manipulation happens. If we go look at their related parties, see all kinds of consulting. They have a pharmacy consultant, all kinds of therapy-related organizations. They even have a construction company that does their own maintenance. They have another company that owns the land in the building, and they're leasing it to that nursing home. They own the company that owns the building, yes. the property. And the nursing home pays that company, in this case, $200,000, roughly. Yes. And so that $200,000 goes on to their operating costs sheet. Yes. But that's actually money that they're just paying to themselves, to yes. another piece of the company. Absolutely. Got it. Absolutely. Okay. And the, the camera crew just uh, did a tremendous job by uh, capturing the room, the uh, e even the just the, the lighting and uh, where you positioned uh, the, the screens and uh, you weren't everything. you weren't bored watching that. <laughs> I was I was captivated. Uh, I and mean, you know, look, been... you're you're, you're yeah. in a unique position. Uh, I'm I'm breaking the wall here, but you're in a unique position of working for an organization that really is deeply invested in these numbers and how they work. Um, our challenge in that whole setting was how do we how do we uh, how do we navigate? Because you know those spreadsheets. Maybe people listening, some of them are familiar with them, but to to the average audience, those things are incredible. I mean, they are cumbersome and almost arguably designed to be impenetrable. Um, and we had a real chat. I mean, what's amazing about Ernie is that he has a calm and soothing and pensive and under like just the kind of voice you want to listen to him and he also cuts right through a lot of bs which is really nice you know but at a certain point you need to sit with him and look at a screen of numbers and have him explain what the heck is going on here 
ultimately it was this incredible effort to try to say, how do we, how do we make this digestible? Um, and, and I think it's, it's one of the achievements of this piece that I, I'm, I'm really proud of and, and, and impressed with my colleagues that, that we, you know, got like, you know, I think we did a pretty good job. Like, did we nail it? I don't know. But I think we got, we got pretty close to doing, communicating something that's just so complicated. And, and the other, the other person I wanted to mention is a, a MT Connolly. Uh, and I, she, she is a, she's an attorney, correct? A, so she um, was a former prosecutor for the okay. Department of Justice. Um, and then she's had, you know, a long career doing different things. Um, she got out of government and now is, you know, writing a book looking at, I guess, you know, she's, she's a big thinker. Uh, so she's looking at bigger issues in the system, ways to change it. And she has sort of the prosecutorial background as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Josh, you know, had, I think Josh was the first person to reach out to her and talk to her and sort of, um, you know, find MT. And there was like kind of little subtle, subtle visuals. Like there was a, a Virginia Woolf candle, a wise ass hat, which I, this is a podcast, so you're not going to see it, but to the eye, it kind of. Well, she had a, she had an amazing, um, yeah, her bookshelves were amazing. MT was one of those people I was, I was on the hunt. I mean, part, I was trying to understand a little more about um, life care's interactions with the federal government, because they felt to me journalistically, like interesting opportunities for um, research. There were just a few times, there's just essentially these touch points, these moments in the last 20 years where the company had a, uh, the way I like to think of it as surface for air and um, the federal government got entangled in them and certain things were revealed in court. And it was really, it was really interesting. And one thing, you know, from, from doing this job is that when, when that happens, there are humans who are involved. And so I basically spent a lot of time trying to reach as many people as possible who've been involved um, from the DOJ side in that process. Um, and that eventually led me to MT who was, you know, this gift of a human, because in some ways she's, she's very straightforward. She is a former prosecutor who um, worked on these cases at the Department of Justice, was involved in uh, prosecuting and investigating nursing homes, including life care. But since then has, has become much more of a kind of uh, deep intellectual thinker about the nature of aging and the nature of, of long-term care and what it means to get old in this country. And um, she's working on a book about, about aging. And it's, so it's going to be a kind of hybrid of, uh, sort of thoughts and, but also, you know, essay and, and journalism and her own personal experiences. And that's kind of what's so special about her and why she was such a great person to include later in the piece, because she, to some extent, you know, I think allowed us to pull back even more and say, you know, the, the question that we're, we set out to answer in the beginning, which was, why does this keep happening? It has a number of concrete answers. It has answers in terms of the power of the lobby, the power of these companies, the insufficiency of regulations, the ability of these companies to just kind of ignore what's thrown at them. It also has a more abstract component, which is that people don't like to think about aging. They don't like to think about their own aging or their parents' aging. They don't like to think about this stuff that's upsetting and sad and hard to process. And the big 
lift that it would take to actually change nursing homes is actually a lift that it would take to change our entire relationship with what it means to get old in this country and how we finance it and what we expect from our institutions and ourselves. And, and that's the kind of thing that she thinks about all the time. And it's not, by the way, it's not uh, entirely bleak. I mean, she got emotional talking about it, but, but it's also a source of hope because it speaks to a path out of what feels in other, in other ways like, like a real abyss. It feels like a way that we can actually make some change. Final question before the guest Rex. I'm gonna ask it to both of you, but you go into a project like this with a certain certain idea that there's a tragedies going on in nursing homes and there's something fundamentally wrong at a more systemic level. What is there anything that you that you learned that was something that you that was not what you expected that any kind of preconceived notions you you had going to this that proved to be wrong? I, I have to be honest, like I I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions going into this about things. I mean, like I had, we had a things that feel obvious now didn't feel obvious to us before, because I think the thing to remember is that, you know, Tomas and I did do a story a, a year ago, a year before about um, some of the horrors that took place at a nursing home that was run by the VA in New Jersey. And so that was our first sort of taste of, what was wrong with this industry or that there was something really wrong. And I think, I think this is to be, you know, to anyone who probably is listening to this, like the idea that two people could have that first taste two years ago is insane to them. Right. Although like one of the points of our doc is that the pandemic revealed all these things that have been there all along that some people didn't notice. And we, we were among them. We had not covered this industry. I mean, I had not covered this industry previously, but we, I remember feeling when we did that piece, like um, that initial piece that a lot of the anger was that families felt about what happened to their loved ones was directed at the people who they came in contact with, um, which meant primarily the nurses and the, the care people in the, in the homes and then up to the administration, but only as far as the administrators they met. And in the course of that piece, I think we tried to strike a balance with that because there were some administrators who made, you know, significant, who were on the scene who made significant mistakes and, and, and frankly did some really bad things. But at the same time, it always felt really unsatisfying. It always felt to me like we're missing some of this story and I don't know what it is. Um, but, but whenever the only people someone sees to blame, because I have covered other institutions quite a lot, including the military, whenever people are blaming only the people they've met, that probably means that there's some other folks who are, who are successfully avoiding accountability. One thing I will say is like, I don't think that we initially planned to zero in on life care when we started on this project. You know, life care, that kind of evolved naturally over the course of working on this. But so I, 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 I had to learn a lot. This was an education for me in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think that my hypothesis that there were more people pulling strings behind the scenes was proven incorrect. I think that, that I felt like that kind of was borne out. Um, but there were a lot of holes that had to be filled in for me. And honestly, still to this day, there are a lot of holes for us. I think we're still, um, Tomas and I are still very interested in learning more about how these companies operate and um, life care in particular, but, but um, getting deeper into the nature of these, of these companies, because there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that 
we still want to know? I think for me, the biggest realization was, oh my God, like why hasn't this changed? How is it that we have sat here for decades while this has been a problem? And, um, you know, empty kind of gets at that point, which is, you know, society doesn't look at it, um, you know, and through this process, I have become much more aware of the issues in the industry and the importance of, of you know, talking about aging, thinking about what happens when one does get older and, and looking at alternatives to nursing home facilities or reforms that could be made or some things that are easy fixes for maybe the government, right? All right, so we close with a guest rec uh, segment. So I'm gonna ask each of you for two quick recommendations uh, one relating to long-term care, nursing homes, or you can do health in general, and then the other can be anything. And these can be uh, an album, a movie, a website, a book. It can be an activity, uh, whatever's on your mind. So, uh, Tomas, you want to go first here? Sure. Um, so, for my first one, nursing home related, um, I want to recommend the documentary, The Mole Agent. Um, it was made in Chile, and it's about um, this man who uh, gets hired by a private investigator to go undercover into a nursing home because somebody who has a loved one in there thinks that their loved one is being mistreated. Um, and it, it, it's just an incredible, incredible film that is whimsical. It's touching. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, really good. So I would highly recommend that. And then my second recommendation is if you're into true crime, um, I just completely like ran through this podcast recently called Your Own Backyard. Um, it's about uh, the disappearance of a freshman in the 90s, I believe, uh, from Cal Poly Technic Institute, Cal Poly on the West Coast. Um, and the podcast is super well reported, um, you know, actually reignited sort of public interest in the case and has led to an impact in the case. So it was really, really well done. Highly recommend. That's, it sounds like Serial 2.0. It's right. very much in that vein, for sure. Okay, great. And you're the you're actually the second uh, person to recommend uh, the mole agent. The previous, uh, we had, I don't know if you've heard of the documentary Fire Through Dry Grass. We had the directors from, from that documentary and that's, the directors from, or from that episode were, uh, filmed a documentary about a uh, nursing home in New York city during COVID. But uh, yeah, one of them recommended uh, the mole agent. So it sounds like it's time for me to put that on. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. And what do you got, Josh? Um, you know, nursing home related because I'm so interested in the finances. I, I strongly recommend Mary Adelaide Mendelssohn's book, Tender Loving Greed. It was something I read early on in this process. Um, this is a book that came out in 1974 um, and it was just like 1970s style muckraking about how, about nursing home finances, specifically how the industry had just around that time. And this is like right, right in the early days of Medicare, Medicaid started to see these, these conglomerations of people putting essentially like the, the transformation that took place in the industry that we still live with today, which is kind of like nursing home becoming real estate and then obscuring ownership through putting things in different people's names. I mean, that whole kind of thing that's become very sophisticated now. She uncovered it all in the 70s. And in some ways, reading that book 
completely changed my thinking of this piece because it was like, okay, we have to acknowledge that this has been reported on and it reported on, although like that book kind of disappeared, reported on so thoughtfully. And I mean, she got one of the accountants and there's a chapter where she goes to the accountants of the owners of one of these homes and he just opens the books to her. I mean, it's just an, just an incredible story. She's one of those muckrakers who, who just, you know, was, was just, uh, just incredible, just so impressive. So um, I strongly recommend that. And then for the non-nursing home book, I'm going to, I'm going to do something in house. I'm going to recommend a book by one of our colleagues. Um, it's called, they said they wanted revolution. Uh, by Neda Tuluisa Mnani. But also uh, it, I was going to recommend that, Josh. It's called, <laughs> so I so yeah, I, I was going to, I figured you would. So if I did, so it's, I'm going to start that up. It's, it's called, uh, they said they wanted revolution, a memoir of my parents by Neda Tuluisa Mnani. And she writes uh, this kind of dual memoir and sort of somewhat journalistic enterprise looking back on um, her parents who were, uh, her father was was a revolutionary in um, Iran and died when she was quite young and her mother died much later and she sort of explores their early life together and and then you learn quite a lot about the these these periods in in Iranian history which are so fascinating and Iranian American history and immigrant immigrant life and it's just it's just a delightful book and I strongly recommend it all right. Thanks so much. And I'll recommend uh, head to the Vice News website and, and YouTube channel. We'll put a link to that. And I'll also share your your uh, Twitter handles if anybody has tips, uh, please, please. Has tips on life care centers or nursing homes in, in general. Uh, they'll knock on doors and they'll make some calls. So uh, thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast and congrats on a, on a great documentary. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was really fun.